So this morning we are in the fifth week of our sermon series through the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Peter, one of the leaders in the early church, and he wrote it to a group of Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And I've entitled the sermon series Stranger because one of the themes that runs throughout this book is that we are here as strangers in this world, resident aliens, foreigners, that even though we live in this world, we are citizens of heaven, trying to figure out how do we live as dual citizens, so to speak, who belong to God in heaven but live here on earth. And so our primary identity and values and hope are found in heaven, not here. But we need to live here. And we need to understand how do we interact in this culture that we find ourselves in. So this letter began with a section that talked about our relationship to God. And then it moved on to our relationship with each other in the church. And now it's in this section about our relationship as believers with the surrounding culture. Remember, I feel like I need to say this every time we read a letter, This letter was not dropped out of the sky from God to 21st century America, right? When you come and read a letter in the Bible, it is a letter written by an actual person to an actual people group. It's not written to Americans in the 21st century. And so when you read, if you read it out of its context and read it as if it's meant, you know, as if it was written to us, you might read things and be like, wait a minute, this, this, this offends me, this strikes me wrong, this doesn't make sense to me. That's why we read it in its context, we understand what it meant in its context, and then we apply it to our context today, which is what we're going to do. Because this section today, he's writing to Christians who are in a hostile Roman Empire, okay? He's writing to Christians that are in the minority, that are oppressed, that are persecuted, and he's writing to encourage them and to help them understand, how do I live as a citizen in the Roman Empire? How do I live as a servant, as a slave? How do I live as a wife, as a husband, as a child? How do I live when I don't have power, when I'm not in the majority culture? Because it's, it's, it's interesting, the dynamics that they're experiencing. You know, in Christ, this is one of the amazing things that is said about them. Paul wrote this in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is mind-blowing. Basically, he is saying all the categories have dropped in Christ. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, what nationality. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what social status you are, whether you're slave or free. You are all one in Christ. All those categories have dropped, and you are all one in Christ on the same playing field. And so as you enter the church, he's saying, in this community, we don't see each other as slave or free. You know, where the, the free is up here, the slave's down here, or male is up here and the female's down here. Or the Jew is up here, the Gentile's down here. That's how it would have been. But he says, in the church, that's not the way it is. So as you can imagine, in the early church, it really drew a lot of the minorities and the oppressed groups. Because in Christ, they found dignity that was not given to them in the Roman Empire. However, they still live in the Roman Empire. So how do you live as this newly freed, you know, you, you find freedom in Christ as a slave, as a woman, as a Gentile, and, and you're united together, but you still live in a society where there's hierarchies, where you're treated differently on the basis of your ethnicity, your social status, your gender. And so Peter is writing to them to try to answer that question. How am I supposed to live in this Roman Empire? Holding in one hand the freedom I have in Christ, but in the other hand the culture in which I find myself with its hierarchies. 
So let me read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 14. Part of this we read last week, but I'm, again, reading it again and diving a little deeper this morning. Here we go. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see a purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers." Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. This is God's word. Let me pray before we continue. Lord, open our ears and our hearts. Help us to understand what this means. Help us to apply this to our lives. Help us, Lord, to honor you and submit ourselves to you and to your will this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, just notice Peter's goal in this section. He's not writing a marriage manual here. 
He's not writing a primer on slavery or on work relationships. His goal is evangelistic. He wants people to glorify God, to come to faith in Christ. And he wants those who are suspicious of Christians and opposing them and oppressing them to shut their mouths as they see the good deeds of the believers. And so he says this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. So that's his goal, he's saying. He's encouraging them to live good lives so that those who do not believe in God would watch their lives and stop slandering them, stop accusing them of wrongdoing, and would glorify God. So he's encouraging them. This is how he believes. This is how you can live a good life in in your work relationships, in your marriage relationships, as a citizen, so that people won't slander you, so that people won't think evil of you, so they might glorify God. Particularly, he's saying, when you're undergoing abuse, it's a real opportunity to showcase the gospel. He says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. He knows that he's speaking to citizens of the Roman Empire who are experiencing oppression and slander and persecution. He's speaking to wives whose husbands do not believe, who may be mistreated by those husbands. He's speaking to slaves You know, one quarter of the Roman Empire were servants and slaves in those days. So a lot of the people in the church were servants and slaves. And he's speaking to them. And he knows a lot of them are being mistreated. And he's encouraging them how to respond to mistreatment in a way that would showcase the gospel and bring glory to God. And he's telling them the reason to do this is that you're following Jesus' example. He says, to this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Notice that? She says, when you find yourself in these situations as a citizen, as a wife, as a slave, where you're being mistreated, look to Christ. Look to his example. Look to the one who was mistreated but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. I know that I'm speaking out here this morning to, again, we're not in the first century, but I know that some of you find yourself in marriages maybe that are difficult, with husbands maybe who are difficult, who don't believe, or maybe you're finding yourself in work situations where it's difficult, with bosses who don't necessarily treat you well, or as citizens in a country where maybe you feel oppressed, maybe you don't feel like you are treated fairly, And I want to encourage you, as hard as it is to believe this, when you are mistreated, it gives you a real opportunity to showcase the gospel. Remember what Jesus said? He said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Saying, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When you go through hard times, it gives an opportunity. Because anyone can love, you know, a good husband, a good wife, But when you find yourself in a situation that's difficult, how will you react in a way that will showcase the gospel and point people to Christ? So what I want to do this morning, first and foremost, is really focus on the heart. I know some of you are probably looking for laws this morning. Like, give me a law. Like, what does it mean to submit? You know, what does it mean in marriage? What does it mean 
to be a citizen? What does it mean? Give me some laws that I can follow at, at work and as a citizen. You know, there might be some of that, but the majority of this is going to be focusing on your heart. What is the heart of this passage? What's the heart of what Peter's trying to communicate? Where are you going to find the power to honor God, to do what is right, to not respond to evil with evil? I think it goes back to that line again where he says, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. He says, look at Jesus' example. He is the one who entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And three things I want to say in particular about that. First of all, I want to encourage you. If you are going to have the spiritual power to be able to undergo difficult situations in a way that honors God and points people to the gospel, first of all, you need to entrust your identity to God. First and foremost, I mean, imagine you're a slave and you are being told by your culture that that is your identity. You are a slave. You are less than. In the Greek culture, they were seen as objects, as bodies. They weren't even seen as people. Aristotle said that some people were fit to be slaves. They were born to be slaves. And women in those days... They weren't seen as as property, but they were seen as inferior to men as well. This is your identity, according to the Roman Empire. But what does it look like to entrust your identity to God, both in the first century and today? To not let yourself be defined by others or by how others treat you, what others say about you. Think of Romans 5, 6 through 8, where Paul says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is your identity? How do you see yourself? How do others see you? Let me tell you how God sees you, what your identity is in Christ. There's two things that you need to hold in tension that I think will free you to be able to face any difficulties that come your way in any situation. First and foremost, it says in this, that you are a sinner, that you're so sinful that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save you. Nothing. Nothing else could save you. You could not save yourself. You could not make yourself right before God. It took the death of the Son of God to save you. But on the other hand, you are so loved, so loved that the Son of God willingly gave his life for you to die in your place to take the punishment you deserved. What happens when you hold those two things in tension as your identity? On the one hand, that you're so sinful that you could not save yourself. But on the other hand, you're so loved that Jesus would willingly die for you. If you really understood that as your identity... Think of the humble confidence that would give you. On the one hand, you can't look down on anybody because you know you're no better than anyone else. You know that the only reason that you're saved is because Jesus died for you, not because you are smarter than anyone else or better than anyone else. But on the other hand, you know that you are so loved that Jesus would die for you. The Son of God would give his life for you. So on the one hand, it's like, what can anyone do to you to humiliate you? What can any... Culture, husband, boss, duty, humiliate you. You already know the truth about yourself. You know you're a sinner. 
You know that you couldn't save yourself. You know that you were in desperate need of salvation. There's no pride left for anyone to humiliate. But on the other hand, who can ever take away your dignity? Because if the only one whose opinion really matters of you calls you his beloved, has chosen you, has loved you, has died for you, calls you his beloved child, perfect in his sight, then what can anyone say or do to you that could ever take that away? What could any husband or wife do to you or call you that could ever take that dignity away? Any culture, any society can't rob you of that. That is who you are. And so no matter what you go through, that does not define you because you've already been defined by the one who died for you. Remember, this is what Peter said in the previous section. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If that's my identity, if I know that I am on the one hand so sinful that it took the death of Jesus to save me, but on the other hand, I'm so loved that he willingly gave his life for me, then it doesn't matter what anyone else says about me, what anyone else tries to, how anyone else tries to treat me. My identity is not dependent on what they say about me, how they treat me. My identity is secure in him. Amen? Amen. I'm who he says I am. And he says I'm his beloved child, perfect in his sight, that I'm chosen. I belong to him, that no one will ever take me away from him. So what can you do to me? What can anyone do to me? There's this phrase in a recovery movement called uh, detach with love. I don't know if anyone, anyone's ever heard this before. It's from Al-Anon. It's talking about how you detach from someone who's an alcoholic, but not in anger, but with love. And I thought of that phrase as I think about how we're as strangers and foreigners here in this world. You know, that we don't detach in anger, but we detach with love. We're not going to let our identity be wrapped up in another person, in a culture, in a society that calls us certain things. But we detach with love, with love towards them as strangers, as foreigners here. I am who God says that I am. So we entrust our identity to God. How can we face a difficult marriage or a difficult situation at work or difficult situation in a country that sees us as evildoers? First of all, we entrust our identity to him, not to what anyone else says about us. Secondly, we entrust the battle to God. Remember, he said, don't return evil for evil. Overcome evil with good. Bless when you're cursed. We don't respond with evil. We don't respond with cursing. Whether it's a spouse, a boss, our culture, whatever it is, however they treat us, we entrust the battle to our God and we respond with good, with blessing, with prayer. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, Paul writes, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We don't fight with the weapons of this world. We don't try to tear people down the way we might be torn down. We don't slander and fight the way they slander and fight. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. They're the weapons of prayer, the weapons of love, the weapons of the word of God. 
Jesus put it this way. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Again, I know that I am speaking into some people who are in situations where you're like, but you don't understand. You don't understand who I'm living with. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand how people treat me. I know I don't, but I'm pointing you to Jesus who says this. He says, listen, I can empower you by my Holy Spirit to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to not respond to evil with evil, but respond with good, respond with blessing, respond with prayer. So entrust the battle. Again, when you are being attacked and you want to fight back and destroy the person who's attacking you, this is the reminder. The battle belongs to the Lord. He is more than capable of fighting for you. The weapons you're going to win this battle with are not the weapons of this world. They're the weapons of God. Their prayer, their love, the word of God. Thirdly, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Entrust judgment to God. Let God be the judge. Even if you are mistreated in this world, do not respond with judgment. Respond by letting God be the judge, trusting that he can do a better job. He's got the right perspective. He's all-knowing. He knows who deserves what. Again, if your call is to respond with love, with blessing, it's because he will judge. He can take care of that. He is more than capable. When we've been offended, we know that we want to respond with vengeance, but he says, Leave it to me. I'm the judge. I will take care of it. Your job is to love, to forgive, to bless, to pray for. Romans 12, 17 to 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Piece of cake, right? These are hard teachings, are they not? These are hard teachings. In our flesh, the natural response when we are offended and hurt is to fight back, to take vengeance to respond in kind. And God says, no. Look at the example of Jesus, who as he suffered, he did not retaliate, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He knew who he was. His identity was secure in the Father. He did not need to respond to what they were saying about him. He could entrust the battle to God and he could entrust judgment to the Father. He could, as he hung on that cross, say what? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can I encourage you, as hard as this is, this is the call to ask God by the power of his Holy Spirit to encourage and equip you for this, to respond to evil with good, to respond to slander with love. Entrust your judge, the judgment to the one who judges justly. 
So in this section, now that I've gotten to the heart of it, he goes through three specific spheres that I want to touch on. Government, the workplace, and marriage. Government, he says, yeah, government. He says this, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, in those days, Christians were in part of the Roman Empire with the Caesar, emperor, Nero was one of the emperors around that time who was fanatical about persecuting and killing Christians and throwing them to lions and burning them at the stake. And here is Peter saying, submit to the authorities. Don't try to, you know, get some sort of revolution going, take up arms and militia and go after the government. But by your love, by your service, by your submission... This is how God is going to overthrow the empire. It's not going to be by the weapons of this world. Your primary citizenship is in heaven, yes, but that doesn't mean that you cannot, that you can just throw off the government that you are under here on earth. Paul puts it this way in Romans 13, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. And this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Look at what they're encouraging you. Both Peter and Paul, they're saying, believers, Christians, you should be the most model citizens. You should not give the government any reason to come against you and try to destroy you but you should be model citizens to whatever possible extent that you can be, that you should seek the peace and prosperity of your city, that the government should be able to look, the police, the governing authorities should be able to look on you and say, there are people who we don't have to worry about. They're always doing good. Remember, he calls them exiles. You know, you're strangers here, which goes back to the exiles in Babylon. This is what God said to the exiles in Babylon. He said, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. They were put in Babylon, again, this terrible, godless city. And God tells them, seek the peace and prosperity of that city. Be model citizens. Bless them. Now, of course, some of you are asking, well, what about when you're asked to do things that are contrary to God? What if the authorities are telling you to do things that are contrary to God's will? Well, Peter himself disobeyed the authorities when they were telling them to do things that were contrary to God's will. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. Okay? So there are times where the government tells you to do things that are in opposition to God. And Peter himself gives the example saying, 
when those two things are at opposition, we're going to submit ourselves to God, and we're going to submit ourselves to whatever punishment that comes our way. That's how you do it in a submissive way, right? We're going to submit ourselves to God first and foremost and obey him and submit ourselves to the government and whatever punishment comes our way for our disobedience. But if it's just something you don't like, again, we don't live under an emperor. We live in a democracy where there are mechanisms you can go about if there are things that you don't like. There are ways of submitting to the government but questioning things that seem wrong. But recognize the heart here. The call is for Christians to be model citizens. To not give them any other reason to slander you. To call you evildoers. He goes on from there to talk about submission in the workplace. Now again, he's talking specifically to what are called uh, household servants. And he says this. Hold on, where is it? Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Again, remember, he's writing this to first century Christians who are the oppressed minorities, and a quarter of the population were servants and slaves. He wasn't going to be writing saying overthrow slavery, right? Abolish slavery because it was not going to happen because of his letters. It wasn't going to change anything. Instead, he was writing to those who found themselves in a position of slavery of servitude, encouraging them to be model employees, to be model servants. Even when they were oppressed, even when they were treated unfairly, he says, live in such a way that you point them again to the gospel, to Jesus and his example. By doing this, eventually, you know, Christians would be at the forefront of overthrowing and abolishing slavery because this undercut so much of what slavery was all about. They weren't bodies. They were image bearers, right? Every slave was an image bearer equal to status of the master. Miroslav Volf put it this way. He said, the call to follow the crucified Messiah was in the long run much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would have ever been for an allegiance to the crucified Messiah. Indeed, worship of a crucified God is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. As they gave dignity to the slaves, as they raised them up as image bearers, eventually it undercut the whole idea of slavery. Remember again, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. But in the meantime, before this was going to be abolished, he said, again, encouraging these servants, these slaves, to be model employees, to be model servants, to point their masters to Christ by the way they responded. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. 
For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called as Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. See that? He's like, hey, if you can get your freedom, great. But again, even if you're a slave to a man, you are free in Christ. Your identity is secure in him. So don't worry about what they call you or how they treat you. You're the Lord's. One of the great examples, if you look through the Old Testament, would be David. Think about King David. He was a household servant to Saul. And he entrusted himself to God. We read this in the Bible recap in the past couple weeks. All these opportunities where David could have taken Saul's life, but he said, no, I'm going to entrust myself to God. I'm going to treat him with respect and honor, even when he doesn't deserve it. Even when he's abusing and mistreating and chasing me, I'm going to treat him with respect and honor and trust myself to God. And again, I know some of you are saying, but you don't understand my boss. You don't understand my situation. Again, the encouragement is keep your eyes on Christ. See, even the opportunities where you're being treated, mistreated as opportunities to point people to Christ in the way you follow his example. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. And I love this line we looked at a few weeks ago. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. In other words, not just when your boss is paying attention, but even when they're not there, you're obeying, you're honoring them because you're honoring Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. So again, he's encouraging them. Listen, in the situation, no matter how hard it is, keep your eyes on Christ. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Find your identity in him and respond the way Christ did by, with love with service. And then he moves on to marriage. And he says this, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Again, imagine the context here. If you were a wife or a husband in the first century, in those days, women were inferior to men. And wives were supposed to go along with their husbands in just about everything. So imagine you are a woman who comes to faith in Christ, but your husband's an unbeliever. How are you supposed to live in in, in this situation in a way that honors Christ? This is what Peter is referring to here. He's trying to speak to these women, encouraging them. How do I be faithful to God in the midst of this society where I'm expected to be inferior to my husband? This was an example of uh, advice at the time from the philosopher Plutarch, in his advice to the bride and groom, he said, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. So if this is what's expected of you as a wife in those days, to worship whatever God your husband worships, to have only the friends that your husband has, and then you become a believer and your husband's not a believer, what do you do? 
This is what Peter's speaking into. And he rejects the command that they're supposed to worship their husband's gods. He doesn't tell them, don't worship God. He's telling them to worship God, but to live with their husbands in such a way that they will be won over by their conduct, by their submissive spirit, by their purity. It would have been shameful in that culture for a wife to be instructing her husband. And so he he said, don't worry about the words. Win them over by your actions. Win them over by your behavior. And he does have a word for husbands. He does say, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner, the physically weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Notice he says that they are heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. They are, again, they're they're equal in Christ to you. They're heirs with you. They're not inferior to you. So be considerate with them. Treat them with respect. And then he ends by saying, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's kind of a nice way of saying, like, because their daddy in heaven is not going to like it if you treat his daughter disrespectfully, right? Someone's going to have some issue with your prayer life here if you mistreat his daughter. And so even in this culture where it was seen that men were superior and the women were inferior and the women had to go along with the man and everything, he tells the husbands, your wife's a co-heir of salvation. She's equal with you. She's one of God's precious children. And of course, remember Paul in Ephesians 5, he speaks to Christian husbands and wives and he gives a lot more instruction to men about treating their wives as Christ loved the church. Again, bottom line is that I know Many of you find yourself in very difficult situations. And let me be clear, I do not see this as saying, undergo physical abuse and just endure it. In those days, at least I know that in the Roman Empire, even that was not allowed in, it wasn't sanctioned in the Roman Empire among the pagans. This wouldn't have been a part of Peter's expectation either. But he is encouraging those who find themselves in relationships that are difficult and challenging to not respond to evil with evil, but to respond with good, with love, with blessing, to keep their eyes on Jesus, to follow his example, to entrust yourself to him who judges justly, to entrust your identity to him, not to let anyone to take to heart what anyone says about you, how anyone treats you, but to know that you are a beloved child of the king to entrust entrust the battle to the Lord, not to respond to evil with evil, to fight back with the weapons of this world, but to entrust the battle to the Lord through prayer, through love, through the word of God, and then to entrust judgment to God, recognizing that he has got your back and he will take care of this. Your job is to love. I'm going to close in prayer, but I want to encourage you, if this has brought up anything with regards to your specific situation, you are welcome to reach out to me and have a conversation. Again, these are the general kind of principles, the heart of the matter, but all of you have specific situations that are very difficult to navigate, I know. And so if you want to talk through this further, you're welcome to reach out to me, whether I have the answers or whether I can point you to men and women in this church who have gone through similar experiences who can be there for you. I just want to encourage you If you have any questions or want to talk through this further, to please reach out. Let's close with prayer. 
Father, at this time I do lift up those in our midst who are in difficult situations, whether in marriage, in workplace, or in this world, struggling with this call to love when they are mistreated, to respond to evil with love and kindness, forgiveness. God, I pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit into their hearts this morning, encourage them, help them to find their identity in you, that no one or nothing could ever rob their dignity because it's secure in you. Lord, would you fight the battle for them as they entrust themselves to you? Would you fight the battle for them? Would you change hearts? Would you bring the oppressors to faith in you as they are won over by the love and respect and honor We pray, God, for you to do miraculous things in our midst, Lord, as we submit ourselves and entrust ourselves to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.